Greetings and salutations, friends, and welcome back to the arcade. We are your video game podcast here coming to you for the end of the month of June of the year 2021. How's it going, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages? I am Mike the Legend, who's glad to be back with you once again here on this fine audio program that is going into your fine ears and being absorbed by your fine brain because you are a fine person who's made the fine choice to listen to this fine audio program. Yes, and uh, as always, I'm Dennis, uh, the man who appreciates being fully vaccinated, but does not appreciate being wrecked after the second shot. (laughs) Ah, yes, yes, as uh, you and I are part of the uh, growing number of uh, the population here in where... uh, where we live in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, that are quickly getting their second shots as they've become available to uh, gain that full immunity, that full vaccination against the uh, COVID virus and hopefully all of its variants. But uh, you you suffered some ill effects from your yes. second shot. Well, I believe both of us suffered some ill effects from our second shot, did we not? We sure did. I was the first one to uh, cross that Rubicon. Yes, though I, I think... Well, maybe I'm just a big baby because I haven't been sick in basically a year and a half because, spoiler alert, not being around other people basically makes it impossible for you to catch whatever germs they're, <laughs> you know, they're carrying around, whatever illnesses that they've come to work with, whatever nonsense that, you know, that goes around with. And, you know, also the fact that when you're wearing a mask around, hey, also way less chance of you getting sick. Who would have who thought? But... You know, maybe it's just the fact that I haven't been sick in the last basically year and a half that, you know, the first time my body felt a little bit of a sickness, it just basically was like, eh, well, you're done for three days. <laughs> <So> <laughs> the first day, brutal headache. Second day and third day basically was just like, oh, you feel weird and out of sorts and like a little bit sore and a little bit chills, a little bit overheating, kind of like a low-grade flu that's not really a bad flu, but just like low-grade and just annoying. And that weird kind of like fuzzy in the bubble feeling that you have (laughs) when you haven't slept enough. That whole thing. That's how I felt for like three days. (laughs) Uh, you you got the the extended edition of the uh, the the COVID second shot wreckness. Yes, whereas you only had, well, from what I understand, it was mostly just sort of like a day ish. Yeah, mostly uh, mostly concentrated around one day. I think it uh, for me, you know, I felt fine immediately after the second shot. Uh, went to bed later that night on a Sunday and uh, still felt mostly fine. Could feel maybe there's something coming on, so I took some time off. Tylenol and then 530, you know, the morning just woke up. I'm like, all right, something's off. I am not 100% here. Could feel the body starting to go on me and, uh, could feel the, could feel the fever coming, could feel the headache coming, could feel the, the, the body shivers coming. And so got up, had to use the washroom, took some Tylenol then and, uh, then proceeded to lay under three blankets and still could not get any semblance of warmth to my vessel. And just the whole day after that, you know, called in sick to work, which doesn't really happen often, and uh, just basically was wrecked on the couch uh, attempting sleep and uh, just watching game shows because uh, I was I was done. That's it. Put a fork in me. I was done. I had the had the aches. I had the fever. I had the 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 body chills. I just had the. I did not have the fuzzy brain though. This is a, a slight difference. I did not have fuzzy brain. Had my full mental faculties, but the the body was just not feeling anything that day, and uh, so. Thankfully, had a better sleep the, that you know first night of being wrecked, and uh, could manage, could muscle through. I wasn't a hundred percent, of course. I was 
I was modestly better than the first day, but, uh, you know, maybe back up to about 60% of my, uh, normal state and then slowly got better the days after that. But, uh, the real damage was done that first day, but, uh, you, you got it dragged out for uh, a couple days to just really drive home the fact that, uh, you got that second shot and your body wanted to remind you, hey, you did this to yourself. <laughs> yeah, you did this to yourself. Thank you for doing your civic duty. Now go lie down for three days, you idiot. It's like, okay, thanks. You didn't have to put the idiot part on there, but whatever. Really punctuating that point that uh, you've done the right thing by getting your second vaccination. Yeah. That's not to try to discourage anyone from getting theirs. If they're on the fence, if they're thinking about it, you should absolutely still do it. Yeah, that's... uh yeah. And our experience, uh, as what we may have just described, strangely not unique to either of us. No. I mean, f- f- the, after polling a few people, the general consensus I've got was the people who, you know, got Pfizer for both their first and second shots, are they're perfectly fine. No problems whatsoever. Not even really a sore arm or anything. The people who had Pfizer for their first shot and a Moderna for their second shot, seemed like it was like a 50-50 chance whether or not they'd feel okay or not the next day. Fine. But, you know, when they weren't feeling well the next day, it was just kind of like, I'm not feeling great for one day, and that was pretty much it. Those of us who are full-on full on in on the Moderna train, <laughs> Moderna first dose, second dose, second dose seems to wreck everyone. <laughs> That's Yeah, to to a person, and it's uh, pretty much the same symptoms I've uh, I've heard from people who I know that got the second shot, or their second shot being Moderna as well after a Moderna first dose, and it's yeah, some combination of fever, body aches, chills, and just general, uh, just general, not right with the worldness. Yeah, just something is not quite right, even if you can't. But the weird thing about it. Is that it's like, like I said, it's not like the sickest I've ever been. It's not even, it's just enough for it to be like, I can't go to work because I don't think I could work, but it's not like full on like, oh, I'm going to die. Like, it's not like that. Like, it wasn't that bad, but it was just sort of like, huh. I think as I uh, described it to a person, it uh, kind of felt like uh, one of those flus that would just come and wreck you for a day. And then just move on. It felt like in that vein, except I didn't feel as sick as those situations have made me feel in the past. Yeah. Yeah, it was very strange. And perhaps it's because I was uh, maintaining a steady diet of uh, of Tylenol every, like, three hours. <laughs> Slightly shorter intervals than what the bottle recommends. I don't care. I know my body. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know what it can take, and it can take Tylenol every three hours. That's fine. Your liver is going to take one for the team for this short period of time. It'll be fine. <laughs> All right, liver. I've been too good to you recently. Time to cash in some of my karma. Yes, exactly. It's like, all right, radio and, and doffs its cap at me, and uh, we move on and take another dose of Tylenol. Tylenol. Yes, exactly. But uh, the countdown is on for both you and I and uh, several other people we know, because it seemed like there was uh, a crush of uh, people, at least in our circles or at least our age range, who all seem to go for their second shots in very close proximity. I managed to get my appointment the day before you. I have another friend who got uh, the, his shot same day as you. So it's uh, we're kind of all starting to get there, or at least some of us seem to all be starting to get there. Yeah, and it's very exciting to see, you know, I'm just excited to be able to start 
doing things with people again without having to worry about like, oh, but oh, now we're not doing the right thing because none of us are vaccinated and uh, all these warnings about, you know, being in close proximity with people and blah, blah, blah. Well, when we're all vaccinated and we're not really spreading things anymore, hey, what's the issue here? <laughs> yeah, the only thing we have to fear spreading is the STDs. Those are still there. <laughs> Never gone away. I mean, I believe you can speak for yourself on that one, my friend. <laughs> Uh, just imagine a future will, when we'll be able to uh, actually record this uh, program in person, in each other's company again. It'll be a very, uh, <laughs> for some stupid reason, I want to jokingly say, what a dark day that'll be. But no, <laughs> that is not the case. No, it'll be a joyous occasion. Neither Mike the Legend nor myself have seen each other in months. It's been, what, since November, I think. Yeah. Which, which in the grand scheme of things, not as long as some others, uh, you know, uh, perhaps less time than others, whatever the case, that is simply our situation, but, uh, my god, uh, you'll be able to see how wonderfully long my hair has become. <laughs> yes, and my hair remains as short and not quite there as possible, as, as, as ever. <laughs> well, you know, blessed, that's all I can say. <laughs> uh, yes but you'll even get, be able to get back to making music with people yes been quite a while since we've done that actually be a band with uh with people again yeah exactly i mean it's, it's gonna be weird i i will admit you know once i was able to make my uh second appointment last week uh and had it uh, just a couple days after I made the appointment, started getting a little emotional. Like, wow, this is actually happening. There's there's an end to all this uh, this process, all this malarkey. But now that the prospect of actually, to to a certain extent, re-entering society is uh, uh, drawing ever closer, I'm getting a little weirded out and slightly uh, uh, anxious by the prospect of being around people again in social gatherings and social situations. <laughs> Is it like the, you know, I, I don't want to say it's the same thing inmates experience when, you know, they've been released to the public after a long stint in being incarcerated. But, you know, certainly there's going to be some degree of that feeling of, you know, what Andy Dufresne and all them went through at the end of the uh, the Shawshank Redemption and such, where you're just kind of like, just out of sorts. And I don't know. Yeah, huh. how, how how do I conduct myself again? How do how how do I exist uh, among other people? Uh, you know, I've felt fairly removed from everyone for the last year and a half, as I'm sure many others have as well. So it's uh it's it's going to be weird. Got to got to take it slow, just one person at a time. Yes, I mean, I I will admit too, I've seen uh, footage and sports highlights of uh, uh, sports gatherings and sports events happening in America land, where it's full arenas and uh, just a crush of people, and those situations just whew. Give me great anxiety. I can't imagine that scenario. No, I mean, it's just it, like... It just weirds me the hell out. Yeah. It'll be very interesting to see how long it takes everyone's kind of uh, opinions on what's deemed safe and how, how many people you want to be hanging around with and stuff to... How long it takes people to come around to the idea of, like, you know, being in big crowds again? Because... Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if that's going to be a thing that's going to happen for anytime soon, necessarily. 
Uh, I'm sure some people will just dive right uh, back into it uh, as though they haven't missed a beat, but uh, I can imagine uh, a good number of us in the population still just being anxious the whole time. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> you know, the, it's uh, society was just all running fairly tickety-boo, and then just the uh, the floor just dropped right out. Yep. And it's like, oh, okay, we have to isolate. Okay, I will isolate it in my little hovel, and that's where I've stayed, and now I'll be allowed out of the hovel, and I don't know what to do. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so, I know my girlfriend is uh, a fairly social animal and social creature, and has uh, uh, been doing the backyard gathering thing uh, scenario with uh, some of her friends over the last couple of weeks, so it's... Uh, <laughs> She's just already raring and primed, and I'm just kind of like, no, but that's so weird. It's it's another person. They might be diseased. <laughs> did they go through the quarantine, or what was the, did they go through the deca- de- decontamination chamber? Did they go through? <laughs> <laughs> Do you have like the Purell and Lysol wipes on hand? <laughs> I, I, I fear myself becoming Mr. Burns as he turned into uh, Howard Hughes in that one episode of The Simpsons when he started <laughs> yes. the casino. <laughs> so, so what you fear is turning into Howard Hughes. <laughs> I fear having that much money. <laughs> yes. What, a, what an <laughs> awful thing that would be to be that rich. Man. Just imagine. That what rich. a terrible life. <laughs> oh, that rich, that powerful, that much a, a titan of industry. Oh. <laughs> You know, every morning I wake up and those those thoughts and fears just uh, creep into my brain and I, back under the covers I go. Just uh, can't deal. That day is shot. Sorry. <laughs> I believe, as the kids say, rip. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take your word for it. I am not hip enough to uh, be up with the, the kids in their parlance of this day. Oh, I'm not either. I've just kind of picked up a lot of it through context. So uh, that's me. So would this be a point in kid parlance where I could say yeet and it would uh, be appropriate? Because I know that is a term the kids are using these days, too. I mean, I'm going to say yes, but there's a 80% chance I'm wrong. <laughs> At least 80% chance I'm wrong. Those are good odds. I'm willing to take that bet. <laughs> yeah. Let's not forget, we are not young people on this program. <laughs> No, I think uh, that has become ever more clear as uh, this year has uh, gone on that uh, society seems to have just uh, quickly passed us by. We we understood society and culture and things like technology, and then it's just, nope, gone. Yeah, pretty much. It, it uh, just uh, set the engines to warp 10 and uh, just took right the hell off, and we're just still standing there at the uh, waypoint station or, or uh, way forward just being like, hey, well, what the hell? We're... we're <laughs> Where'd everything go? Pretty much. But we'll stick with what we know, and on this program we know that uh, after the usual opening uh, salvos of banter, we follow that up with the ludicrous leadoffs, which is always the two news items we have come across that are some level of uh, extra special kind of special. We have two items this week that are both revolving charitable amounts of money. Uh, the first one, an interesting tale that uh, takes us all the way down to Texas, I believe uh, north central Texas, to a Goodwill store. And 
probably where you live, you have uh, a Goodwill store or something akin to a Goodwill store, you know, where you donate your used or lightly uh, or gently used items that uh, you no longer want anymore. And the store turns around and sells them for money that is then donated and used for charitable purposes, perhaps programs of some nature, just a good for the community type store, uh, a secondhand store, Goodwill store, things of that nature. And we've had stories in the past on this program of people doing uh, some shopping at a, a Goodwill store, thrift store, secondhand store, and coming across just a rare game that really had no business being there on the shelf of this thrift store. But they find happens to be there when they're there, and they know what the hell they found. So they buy it instantly for $3 and turn around and sell it on eBay for several times that that figure of what they paid. Of course, to their own great personal profit understandable any of us would do it hell we'd love i know you and i both would both love to have an incident like that where hey this or a game just on the store shelf okay i will enjoy this you know extra 10 20 30 thousand dollars worth of profit yeah exactly i mean i think i'm beyond the point in my life where i'd care to just hold on to a thing like that necessarily anymore but if i can turn around and make thirty thousand dollars in like two seconds yeah sure so such a scenario happened down in uh, Texas, North Central Texas, uh, to Goodwill. However, instead of this uh, rare game being found and sold for just one person's uh, sweet, sweet profit, it was instead actually found and sold uh, for a profit that went to the Goodwill organization. The story coming by way of Zach Zwazen from Kotaku, who writes that back on June 17th, uh, Alex Juarez, who's a Goodwill e-commerce processor, at a location in Texas, was going through some uh, boxes of donated video games, electronics, you know, usual amounts of crap. There was probably some VCRs in there or some old DVDs, maybe a DVD player. But in one of the boxes of uh, old stuff that was donated, Alex Juarez found a rare Atari 2600 game. And the rare Atari 2600 game that was found is called Air Raid. It was released in 1982, published by Menavision. And by all accounts, it's... uh, it's nothing remarkable as a gaming experience, fairly uh, generic space combat, uh, really never made any sort of waves. But what makes it rare is that there really were not many copies made of it. And I believe, as Zach Zweisen writes, there's only been 12 copies of the game that have been sold. And even these days, it's not uh, really that there's 12 copies still in existence. So the fact that this copy of Air Raid came through and was found... Well, Alex Juarez, the item processor, put it aside, did some more research on it, and then Goodwill put it up on their Goodwill auction page of shopgoodwill.com. And instead of the usual $3 that they'd make, you know, putting this on the uh, on the shelf in a store or something, when all was said and done, this item went for 10590 US dollars. Yeah, and there's some interesting numbers that kind of surrounded that, so... Like after, you know, it, it went live on June 10th and it, the auction lasted for a week. And according to Goodwill, it was added to 235 watch lists. And after seven days, that's, you know, after the, the number of bids it was 33 bids. I, I have the page open here because you can obviously see the, uh, you know, the, they, they keep these pages up for historical purposes, I guess, even though it shows the auction ended, but, uh, yeah, 33 bids. Um, with the bid increment of being at least a dollar, um, you can see the full history. I mean, you don't see the names or anything, but yeah, 
it's very interesting that it basically immediately jumped up like 20, 50 to 500, 600, 800,000, 2,000, 2,500, et cetera, et cetera, all the way up until, you know, one person bid $10,589.79. And then the next person outbid them by a dollar. <laughs> ah, so we're going Price is Right style on this. Pretty much. So that's, uh, that's it. <laughs> so to, to the lucky bidder S five stars O, <laughs> they, they have, they're now the proud copy, the, the proud owner of a, um, one of only what, 13 copies of Atari, 2600 version of Air Raid in existence? Uh, something like that. And this was, we should point out, just the cartridge that was sold, that was found and donated to Goodwill and then put up for auction. And it was just the cartridge and the auction of this cartridge that, that generated the sum total of $10,590.79. I don't know why there's 79 cents in there. That seems entirely superfluous to me, but what do I know? Obviously, yeah, it, it was obviously a vanity thing for the bidder. Yeah, some kind of maybe it's their them leaving their mark just so they know for sure. Like, yeah, I'm the one that did the seventy nine cents. <laughs> but yeah, um, that's a lot of money. Um, but the crazy thing though is, if this was a complete in box edition of the game, it would have gone for more than thirty thousand dollars because that's what it sold for back in 2012. Now, if you account for you know a little bit of inflation and whatnot. Probably maybe even closer to 40,000. Who knows? But still, uh, yeah. 40,000. And given the flood of money we've seen into the game collecting community over the past couple of years, I dare say, uh, a complete inbox copy of, uh, of Air Raid might go for 50,000, if not more. Could be. Uh, just given the scarcity of Air Raid copies out there. And as we said, this was all done through the Goodwill organization. It was processed by one of their employees at a Goodwill uh, processing center. And so according to uh, a press release that was put out by the Goodwill organization, Liz uh, Confiliano, uh, who is a community engagement director for the Goodwill organization, uh, she explained that the money earned from the sale uh, could do a lot of good, saying, quote, with the $10,000 earned from the sale of this one item, Goodwill North Central Texas can provide day habilitation services for a year for one adult with disabilities or provide 20 homeless individuals with job placement services and community resources or help 10 at-risk youth earn their GED and a paycheck at the same time, end quote. Yeah. So, like, really good cause doing something like this. I mean, there's there's lots of benefits to going secondhand if you can for certain things. I mean, yeah, not everything you want to go secondhand, but some things there's no harm in going secondhand. I mean, clothing, if, you know, clothing can be cleaned. Clothing it's can true. be, I mean, nothing wrong with buying a secondhand suit or, you know, some pants or sure. something if that's shirt, shirt. whatever. Um, maybe not furniture unless it's, you know, not upholstered furniture, but, and then at which point, yeah, sometimes you can get a really good deal on some, like a dining room table set maybe, or like, you know, some coffee tables and stuff. I mean, I've bought that type of thing before, nothing wrong with stuff like that. And also it's always fun to go into a Goodwill store. I mean, in the pre COVID times, but I don't know how people feel after that, but it's always kind of fun to flip through, you know, the record section in a Goodwill store just to see, you know, 
all the Nanamaskuri and like all the various polka <laughs> albums and stuff like that and the various religious <laughs> hymns albums and various Christmas albums and things like that until you finally find, you know, maybe the one oddball gem that you might, it doesn't happen very often, but every now and then there's a weird oddball gem that you might want to pick up and go, wait a minute, what? I should probably buy this. This seems insane. Well, the um, rare first issue of King Diamond, what's this doing here? <laughs> I mean, I've never seen anything like that, but you know, on occasion, a, a fun, like l- l- ludicrous thing might pop up. Like, you know, I picked up, you know, The Lonely Shepherd by Zamfir once because I thought it was funny. <laughs> because <laughs> mostly just because of like, you know, the fact that they used to play that song on loop on one of the weather channels here <laughs> for years. <laughs> just kind of cracks me up and it brings a little bit of nostalgia into my brain, but that's a uh, little odd things like that. I just find it kind of funny. I did not quite realize you have a, or didn't remember you have a Zamfir album in your vast record collection. So it's, uh, <laughs> I'm going to demand to see that next time we're in person. Yes, I will. I'll make a note to, uh, pull it out and, uh, yeah. I, I expect it playing upon my arrival. <laughs> I, uh, yes. <laughs> I may not remember, but, uh, we'll see. So. <laughs> Yes, Goodwill stores, they can have some interesting finds that can lead to some interesting results. But uh, So that is one story of uh, you know a good amount of money raised for charitable good. Uh, another story that we're going to talk about now, uh, not terribly recent. Uh, it closed earlier in the month of June, but we're just getting to it now. These things happen. Stories fall through their cracks and whatnot. But still, we're talking about it now. That's the important thing. And uh, Itch.io, uh, who very famously last summer during the social protests and uh, marches for social justice that were happening in the United States and across the globe in the wake of the killing of George Floyd, amongst other unarmed African Americans uh, at the hands of police, uh, launched their was it bundle for social justice and racial equality, raising a ridiculous amount of money last year. And I think it was what, 5 million. No, it was like almost 10 million. They raised with that HIO bundle. Yeah, it was a, Quite a, quite a large amount of money. Yeah. But also the, the bundle itself was like quite a ridiculous deal. It was something crazy, like what, 10,000 games or 8,000 games or something for like just a few bucks or pay what you want with a minimum of being like 20 or 30 bucks or something like that. Not even that. I think it was only minimum $5 and you got like, Oh, that's what it was. Yeah. Initially like 5,000 games and then just more creators, uh, offered their games up to the bundle, which just, made it an even more ridiculous deal to the point where you'd almost be, you know, wrong not to spend at least the $5 to get that bundle, uh, proving the power of what uh, these HIO bundles can do and, and the funds they can raise for good social charitable causes. And so earlier in the spring, uh, HIO launched another bundle, this one for uh, this one being the indie bundle for Palestinian aid, that the full name of it. As we saw on news reports and, uh, you know, social media postings and whatnot, the, the, uh, conflict between, uh, Israel and Palestine flared up again earlier this spring, which led to a whole lot of devastation on the Palestinian side. And there needs to be some reconstruction efforts and money is needed for those efforts. So HIO and, uh, uh, some of its creators, uh, or, uh, developers launched the indie bundle for Palestinian aid with an initial goal of uh, reaching 
$500,000 US dollars in funding. And this is a bundle that maybe didn't quite have the same scale as last year's bundle for uh, social justice and, and racial equality. Uh, only featured 1,271 games from 1,063 creators at a minimum price of $5. So it's not quite the, the ridiculous 5,000 game total that, or 5,000 games on that last year's bundle started life with, but still, you're getting some really good value for your minimum $5, uh, uh, purchase price. Oh yeah. And the funds were being donated to the United Nations Relief and Works Agency uh, that apparently works to deliver food and medical assistance to Palestinians in need, which is desperately needed in the wake of uh, what happened. Absolutely. So the uh, uh, the bundle itself, the sale of it, concluded on June 11th. 97,000 people made donations to the bundle, and the grand total... Of everything came in just shy of nine hundred thousand U.S. dollars, uh, clocking in at precisely eight hundred ninety-nine thousand eight hundred thirteen dollars and eighty-six cents, from uh, specifically ninety-seven thousand one hundred thirty-eight contributors. Average donation nine dollars twenty-six cents. Top contribution fifteen hundred dollars, which is pretty damn good. So the initial goal was 500000 Once they passed that, they set a new goal of a million dollars. Didn't quite get there, but still, almost $900,000 for this. That's a pretty good take-home. Absolutely. So congratulations uh, uh, and a, a small debt of gratitude owed to everyone who contributed to this campaign and everyone uh, who was a creator who put their game up for this bundle. Uh, certainly... I mean, you're directing whatever funds I'd imagine uh, that you would have received normally through the HIO platform to this uh, charitable campaign. So those are creators, indie creators, who are going out without a little bit of uh, of income for this uh, like week to 10-day period that the bundle was up for sale. So uh, good on everyone involved, just under $900,000. So that is some good social cause that uh, getting a good amount of money. Absolutely. But uh, let's move on from the ludicrous leadoffs. The good social fundraising stories have concluded. And now let's turn our attention to an old friend that we haven't really spoken of a lot on this program, really in the past six-ish months, six, seven months. Uh, a friend that uh, came out in December to uh, a lot of uh, uh, a lot of uh, hype, a lot of attention, a lot of notice, and then kind of quickly dropped the ball after that. Let's talk about our old friend Cyberpunk 2077. Yeah, so we haven't talked about it really in the last six months, mostly because, well, you haven't been really able to buy it on consoles because, well, PlayStation in particularly decided that, you know, it's, um, they only really want to allow games that seem finished and or polished and aren't buggy as hell to be released on their system because it really makes their system look bad if, you know, you buy a game and it, you can't run it. <laughs> So it's kind was, of a black eye. It's kind of an embarrassment. Yeah. So they, uh, CD project red has basically had to be, they've basically been in, you know, damage control mode with cyberpunk 2077 in the last little while. Um, I haven't really been following along with them, but from what I understand, they've been kind of making some fixes here and there. Um, yeah, but, uh, 
that that black period now with the PlayStation Store is coming to a close as uh, Cyber Cyberpunk twenty seven. I'm sorry, Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven has been relisted on the PlayStation Store, um, but <laughs> with with a very odd. I want to say unprecedented warning from both Sony and CD Projekt Red saying that if you're a PlayStation 4 player, you should expect some, um, not a great experience. <laughs> uh, true. Specifically, if you are using the original kind of base level model of the PlayStation 4 console, uh, there's a warning for you people in specific because this game, even though it's coming back to the PlayStation Store, yes, it still has a warning uh, that reads, uh, quote, uh, uh, users may experience some performance issues with the PS4 edition. While we continue to improve stability across all platforms, the PS4 Pro and PS5 versions of the game will provide the best experience on PlayStation. Yeah. S- so, yeah, uh, this is a game that uh, clearly was... Uh, uh, not quite ready for all versions of all consoles when it was released. And uh, the poor dev team who basically were under the, the the endlessly cracking whip of crunch the whole time to get this game out and meet their release date were then placed under the, the endlessly cracking whip of crunch to fix the damn game that they had to uh, deliver and meet a deadline with uh, a couple months earlier. Yeah. So it's almost as if, you know, Crunch doesn't help anyone. What a weird idea, right? <laughs> but but come on, the slaves built the pyramids, so obviously the slaves can build Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven. I mean, yeah, you, you say that, but uh, did they? Yes. <laughs> did they do it well? No. 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 Do we know for sure? Well, I mean, and also you're sort of comparing. <sighs> I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that. Pyramids are not um, complex problems to solve like development problems are. Are they impressive when you look at them in, you know, they're all their glory and like their scope and scale and everything? Yeah. But really, in terms of the pyramids, it's just a matter of more manpower. And, you know, when you're the all-powerful mighty pharaoh, you can basically throw people away all you want <laughs> to get that done. Like, it doesn't really matter. Just throw 200 people at that giant piece of stone. Yeah, some people might get crushed and die, but whatever. It's just the the sheer manpower of it will get that stone up. You can't really do the same thing in terms of development for a game. Uh, that's true. You need some specialized skill, some specialized knowledge to, uh, to, to move these digital stones and uh, build these digital pyramids. So, yeah, I can see that. But still, you still need manpower too, though. Yeah, well, yeah, for sure. I mean, like, there's there's always going to be lots of things to do. Um, but, yeah, <laughs> fixing bugs is not just a thing of, like, throw more developers at it. It's like, no, like, sometimes when you fix a bug, you you create four more bugs. <laughs> like, that's just how fixing bugs works. Sometimes you're basically just fixing one thing and pushing the error further down and then discovering more problems. It's like, Ooh, okay. So now when I fix these more, it it literally becomes a game of whack-a-mole until you finally get to the end of it. And then basically started a new one. You start fixing another top level bug. Like it's like, it's hard to appreciate if you've never been in a situation before, but I can assure you it's definitely the case. And how annoying is that as a development experience? 
I mean, it's not the most fun thing in the world, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's, um, yeah, it, it, it's a part of life as a developer, but yeah, I mean, usually like if you give people the proper time and resources to do stuff right the first time, you don't normally have to worry about too many crazy bugs. Like usually the bugs that you have to fix, you know, in like the, the normal cycle of like, you know, when you've had enough time and haven't been putting people under crunch, they're usually, you know, like bugs are not like you can't have a bug free program. That's just not realistic. Like there are no bug free programs. Like bugs are a natural part of development. Like it's just sort of a thing that you're going to have to put up with in some way, shape or form. But all you can hope for is that things are tested well enough that, you know, you've maybe hit all of like the, the common edge, like the, the, the common cases. And then like anything that hasn't been touched is hopefully a corner case or an edge case. And they don't happen very often. And then if you want to devote time to fixing them, then you don't need to basically have an all hands on deck panic to do that. <laughs> so yeah. So if you out there have been waiting anxiously with bated breath uh, for Cyberpunk 2077 to come back to the PlayStation Store for you to finally have that experience, uh, again, it seems to uh, be advised that uh, you either play it on a PS4 Pro or PlayStation 5. If you are an owner of the base-level PlayStation 4 console, this is not uh, not really a game that you want to be playing. Although CD Projekt Red did say on Twitter in stating that Cyberpunk is coming back to the PlayStation Store, that a free next-gen upgrade is available to all owners of the PS4 version of Cyberpunk 2077, this in coming in the second half of 2021. Uh, Sony, for their efforts, did echo uh, Cyber or CD Projekt Red's comments that, yeah, you're best not to play this on the base-level PS4 console, saying, quote, uh, that work on the PS4 version continues with fixes and updates to be released throughout the year for the best experience on PlayStation playing on PS4 Pro or PS5 consoles is recommended, end quote. So, some light at the end of the tunnel? Maybe? Finally? Although work is going to be continuing on this game for quite a while. Oh, yeah, I would imagine so. And also, it's not light at the end of the tunnel if you do indeed own a base-level PlayStation 4. You know, I I would probably wager a guess that most people who own a PlayStation 4 do own a base-level PlayStation 4, and that most of those people also don't have a PlayStation 5 yet because you can't find PlayStation 5s anywhere still. Oh, yeah, that old chestnut. Yeah, remember that whole problem? That's still a thing. <laughs> You mean that hasn't cleared up since last week? <laughs> no. <laughs> huh. Weird how these problems just continue on for weeks and weeks and weeks. Yeah. Months and months and months, actually. But, well, um, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. But uh, if you perhaps are someone who uh, had an Xbox uh, console and were kind of... Uh, uh, uttering some side-eye and some snickering and some sneering towards your PlayStation compatriots, uh, then uh, you should be advised that if you are wanting a Cyberpunk 2077 experience, uh, but perhaps it doesn't go quite the way you would expect, you were expecting, the special refund that Microsoft had instituted specifically for Cyberpunk 2077 in the wake of its uh, initial release and the wake of its all-initial shittiness, uh, 
that special refund that Microsoft is offering is coming to a close on July 6th. Uh, literally because the game is better than it was with Microsoft saying, uh, in a note on their, I guess, official blog post or official webpage talking about this special refund. They say, quote, the team at CD Projekt Red continues to work hard to improve the experience of Cyberpunk 2077 for Xbox players and has made a number of updates. Given these updates, Microsoft will be returning to our standard digital game refund policy for Cyberpunk 2077 on July 6th for both new and existing purchases, end quote. So pretty much back to buyer beware. And if uh, you're still trepidatious about Cyberpunk 2077 and you have an Xbox, uh, well, you might be uh, advised to get the Xbox Series X uh, and play it on that. The most uh, you know high-end, uh, most technically advanced Microsoft console there is. And so that way you can have the best chance of having a good experience with Cyberpunk 2077. Otherwise, it's a roll of the dice. Yep. And isn't that really what we look for in gaming experiences? <laughs> just we we want them to also be as close to gambling as possible. Just so <laughs> so who wants consistency when you can go for, you know, nail-biting panic when things don't work out the way you want them to? That's what people really want, right? Oh yeah, that's far more entertaining an experience than just a game that works the way it should. I mean, we've we've had that for far too long. We need something where you just don't know what you're going to get. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're obviously joking. No one wants that. That's that's trash. That's, that's just straight up garbage. No one no one wants that experience. People just want you know, the the whole reason for playing games on a console has been so that you're going to get a consistent experience. Without you having to, you know, mess around with getting, you know, a new video card or a new this or that. I mean, yeah, you're not going to get as good of graphics as, you know, and, and, or frame rate as you would with, you know, top of the line PC hardware, but at least you should have a consistent experience that just works on a console. <laughs> like what, what the hell kind of age are we living in now where it's like, Oh yeah, well this game is out for that console, but it's not going to work that well. You should get the better console. It's like, what? <laughs> Why'd you release it for this console at all then? <laughs> well, we started development and uh, on it, you know, before, before we even had dev kits for the, for the newer consoles. So, you know, we just really had to, uh, you know, finish off what we started. You know, we're just really committed people. <laughs> Yeah, committed in the wrong type of way. But uh, <laughs> anyways. Um, Truly. But speaking of committed and or terrible experiences, um, <laughs> this next – anytime we're going to talk about Facebook and or gaming, you know, it's – in the past, it's always kind of been like – well, we're, we're not even really talking about Facebook and gaming in, at this point. We're, we're just talking about Facebook – Doing stuff that is bringing our society closer to collapse, I think, <laughs> and closer to all of like the worst parts of dystopian, um, like cyberpunk esque video games, like the the worlds that you see in cyberpunk, Blade Runner, and all that stuff. You know, the dystopian future type thing. You see, you know, very intrusive technology, and you know, it 
in those, you know, mediums, they're usually, that intrusive technology is usually used as sort of like a warning sign of like, hey, is this really the direction that we want to go in? Because this is a direction, but this is maybe a bad direction. Facebook seems to look at that and misses the point entirely. They seem to look at it and go, actually, no, that'd be really cool. It's like, <laughs> would it be really cool? And the thing we're talking about today is, I, I can't believe we're talking about this, but Facebook has announced that it's going to start testing in-headset VR ads for the Oculus. So, you know, um, if you have an Oculus and you, you, you like using it, you know, to play games or just, you know, use various apps on the Oculus, maybe you've noticed, Hey, you know what? There haven't really been ads on this thing. And chances are your reaction to that hasn't been, we need to change that. <laughs> Has it? It shouldn't have been if you're a good, right thinking member of society. Yeah. So. Facebook did start testing these ads. Well, I guess it was back in, uh, what, Mar- uh, May? But, you know, it's starting, you know, a couple of weeks ago, they started to take things a little bit further by just tossing some adverts inside the, uh, the Oculus Quest VR, uh, mobile app. Uh, and these ads are first being tested in a game called Blast On by Resolution Games, but they're going to roll these ads out to a couple of other apps. And I quote, over the coming weeks. Um, yeah, so the blog, the Oculus blog put a, a GIF up, you know, showing an in-headset ad, uh, showing that it looked like they made it look like players can point at an advert to click on a link or save it for later. And there's a drop-down menu to report and hide ads and an option to tweak user preferences, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't think anyone thinks this is a good idea. Ads are already kind of intrusive enough. You'd think that, you know, with VR, it being a new medium, you'd want to maybe take some time to really think about how you want to work in ads before you start working in ads. No, otherwise they just basically become these like far more intrusive, far more immersive, awful experiences. Like I can only imagine what types of like, I'm sure we've all experienced, you know, those ads for things that are just like, whoa, what the hell is this an ad for? What, what the hell is this showing up for? It's like, or what the hell is that? It's like for, you know, sketchy things, perhaps, you know, depending on the site or whatever you're on, um, or depending on the specifically the, the settings of the site owners, you know, ad serving, you know, you, you can actually set to, you know, ignore ads from certain categories, but some people try to cast a wide net and don't really care. And that'll include getting maybe 18 plus ads, things like that. So just think of how intrusive some of those 18 plus ads can be. And then think of how much more intrusive those 18 plus ads could potentially be in VR. Uh, I dare say this may have been the inevitable outcome from the, uh, from the start of when Facebook purchased the Oculus group and, uh, or the Oculus company and their VR technology. Yeah. Well, I mean, Facebook is a hundred percent in the business of trying to make as much money as possible. They can say that, you know, their, their whole reason for existing is to try to, you know, change society for the better, increase communication between people, blah, blah, blah. They're, they they have 
an unsettling amount of information on everyone in the world. Like, like let's just not like who is whoever's using Facebook. That's to say, you know, on and off the site, they, their tracking of you doesn't, is not limited to when you're on the site. Like if, if you're on the site using stuff, then you go to another website. I mean, this is less of a problem now on mobile apps, especially since Apple decided to cross or turn, turn cross app tracking into a thing that you can opt into, which of course, if you're a user, why the hell would you? <laughs> I mean, I, I click that ask app not to track button for everything and it's great. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, like say, Facebook's in the business of making money, yes, but how they do it is with ads. And they need to know what you as the user are uh, looking at, watching, reading, clicking on, everything. And they can only get so much information through your use of the Facebook site, through the mobile app, and, you know, whatever else they could track you with uh, through there. But, you know... With the Oculus headset, that is a lot more pervasive, and they're going to get a lot more information from the from the eye tracking technology. Yeah, I think so. And this, you know, games may have been the the gateway into this uh, of getting people accustomed to eye tracking technology and all that. But this is the real end game. I'm going to say here is the advertisements, seeing what works, seeing what will catch people's attention, seeing what will elicit some sort of engagement with a user of the Oculus uh, headset and that. So then that way, Facebook has even more refined data as to what people are looking at. Uh, And then you can literally see and have information as to what people are looking at. Yeah. Well, I mean, technically... Well, they already have some of that information through like what people are clicking on and where the mouse is going if you're using a desktop computer, if you're using Facebook and stuff, or if, you know, you're on a website that's using the Facebook pixel tracking, um, uh, software, which a lot of sites are and people aren't realizing it, but, uh, yeah, um, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> with the Oculus, like they, they do have basically, an even closer window directly to your eyeballs. So <laughs> it's pretty unsettling. Sure is. And uh, now there's ads. Now this is the, the initial rollout of ads. Again, uh, the, the testing of it is going to come to other apps over the, the coming weeks. But uh, the blog post on the Oculus blog that was uh, stating this announcement that uh, adverts are now being tested in headset uh, explained that the, uh, Oculus will remain consistent with Facebook's existing privacy policies. Conversations with friends on apps like Messenger won't be used to target ads. Locally stored information on the headset, like movement uh, data or voice recordings, also won't be used to target ads. Although if you click on an ad in the headset, uh, Facebook will get information about whether you interacted with it. Yeah. Again, doesn't say anything about tracking your eyeballs. No. No, it doesn't. But, but as we, you know, know from the past and like their past, uh, instances of things that surprise people, you know, everything you type into Facebook is technically tracked by Facebook, whether you like it or not. Even the, even those comments you started writing and then decided better of yourself to then erase, those comments are all being recorded by Facebook. So they technically know that you wrote that out. It's true. And uh, also, I mean, even when you uh, put on and log into the Oculus headset, uh, you have to do it using your Facebook account. So it's 
you're starting the experience of the of the VR headset uh, experience of that session with Facebook knowing a, a lot about you already. Yep. Uh, one Facebook spokesperson uh, who spoke to uh, Emma Kent of Eurogamer.net about this said, or no, sorry, uh, Emma Kent is quoting an article from The Verge uh, who spoke to a Facebook spokesperson who said that, quote, the system will use data from your Facebook profile as well as whether you've viewed content, installed, activated, or subscribed to an Oculus app, added an app to your cart or wish list, or if you've initiated checkout or purchased an item on the Oculus platform. And lastly, whether you've viewed, hovered, saved, or clicked on an ad within a third-party app, end quote. Yep. All right. So uh, I'm sure Facebook uh, is apparently selling this as a revenue stream to uh, developers that they'll get some cut of the ad revenue that is placed inside their game. However, uh, the, the start of this was in an app called Blaston uh, by Resolution Games. So that was the first app. Uh, and that was announced back on June 17th. Roughly a week later, Resolution Games also became the first developer to pull out of this Oculus in-ad program. Yeah. Um, yeah, so so the update on the game's official Twitter account um, was <laughs> simply said, um, Blaston isn't the best fit for this type of advertising test. <laughs> That's all it said. <laughs> So, not entirely sure what that possibly means. Maybe they found a sharp decline in their user base once they enabled these ads. But, yeah, it's uh, very interesting that as quickly as they opted in, they pretty much pulled right out with because, yeah. Yeah, the 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 uh, string of tweets they posted to their official account on June 21st uh, says, quote, after listening to player feedback, we realize that Blaston isn't the best fit for this type of advertising test. Therefore, we no longer plan to implement the test. We look forward to seeing you in the arena and hope you hope you try the crackdown update that went live today. To make it clear, we realize that Blaston isn't the best fit for this type of advertising test. As an alternative, we are looking to see if it is feasible to move this small temporary test to our free game, Bait, sometime in the future. Yeah. So, so the first game that this uh, stuff was being tested in, they're like, ooh, no, let's, let's maybe not. And I'm sure in no small part due to the blowback from the gaming community and uh, users of this experience being like, what the Sam hell are you doing? Well, a thing I just realized, I mean, I, I'll be honest, I don't really know a lot about the Oculus ecosystem or what games, but apparently Blaston is, is not a free game. It's a game you have to pay for. So, of course I'd be mad if I paid for a game, then all of a sudden I started getting blasted with ads in that game that I've paid for. What did I pay for then if I'm still being blasted with ads? So, yeah, I, I get that. And, you know, unless this other game that they're looking to um, possibly try it out with, Bait, is not a f- paid game, then, yeah, I, I mean, I don't think any game is technically going to be the right game for these ads unless it's a free game, maybe. But even still, the first time that, you know, you're in, an, in a free game and you get, you know, an intrusive ad, that might be it for me. It's like, I don't need to be like it's it's bad enough if it's just sort of like you know something that you can look away from or like you know if it's like 
I'm just really thinking of like, you know, the worst types of ads, you know, like though granted, like a lot of, you know, ad companies and things like that, ad servers have a lot of standards now, thankfully, but you never know odd, the odd one slips through. And the, the last thing that anyone really wants is basically you have to just basically rip the headset off. If you're bombarded with imagery, you don't want to see. And then even to turn it off, you would have to have some level of interaction on it by, you know, clicking on it in headset and going down with the drop down menu to basically remove ad, you know, not right for me, what, you know, yada, yada, yada. And that interaction, even if you're just trying to remove it from your experience is still generating some data for Facebook. Yep, exactly. And that's ultimately all Facebook wants. They don't really have a shit to give about your experience. No, they absolutely just want not. Your, they want your data. Yep. So you, you know how in the Matrix, in that dystopian, horrible vision of the future, when Neo comes awake and actually sees the world for what it is and uh, steps out into what is the, the the real broken world then and sees humans are being used as batteries by the machines? Yep. They started life as Facebook servers. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> like, truly, Facebook is one of the worst possible uh, uses of, of technology these days. Yeah. It, it, the Facebook, NFTs, um, and crypto. That's pretty much, you know, that's... That's yeah. the unholy trinity. Unfortunately, Yes. Good times. Good times. But, uh, so yeah, be aware of that. If, and having said all that, if you are a user of the Oculus headset and you enjoy the VR experience, how do you think you would respond to these ads being tested in apps, in games, on the Oculus? Uh, let us know your thoughts on this. Are you looking forward to it? Do you just accept it as part of the ecosystem, you know, as in some kind of inevitability because it's Facebook? Uh, you can reach out to us and let us know your thoughts on this a couple of different ways. You can write us in the long form uh, with an email, info at com, or you can hit us up on social media. We are on both Twitter and Facebook at The Arcade Show on both of those platforms. Yes, we have just been maligning Facebook. Yes, we have a Facebook account. Yes, it's just still kind of a necessity in this day and age. Yeah, unfortunately. There's, there's no two ways about it, but... Uh, once, once we figure out an avenue that's better than Facebook without being, or, or that manages to be less horrible than Facebook, I think we'll be there. Mm-hmm. Like stink on a hog. But <laughs> uh, speaking of technology, we have uh, one less news item to get to uh, this week, and it deals with technology and actually a very interesting use of technology and servers. Actually, I spoke of servers there. You know, the horrible joke I made, the horrible vision in the Matrix. Those started life as the Facebook servers. Well. Microsoft actually is using technology from their new console to extend the life of their old console. Yeah. So, you know, I want to say this is, you know, maybe PlayStation should be taking a page out of this book, but I'll bite my tongue on that. I mean, there are different companies with different business models and different, um, different access to different technical infrastructures. Uh, Microsoft clearly has, you know, is a far more robust technology company in this regard, I'd say, than Sony. You know, Microsoft's whole bread and butter before they got into um, gaming in general was more business applications, and part of that business application was server software, and 
you know, the, the extension of that server software business became what is now known as Microsoft Azure, which is their whole suite of online server, like basically instances of servers and stuff. You can spin up an Azure server that's basically whatever you want, a, you know, a database server, a file server, a web server, a whatever type of server. It could just be just some random virtual machine that lives on the internet. Um, but with all of this means that they have basically some pretty robust infrastructure in place to let you, um, yeah, basically just, you know, do whatever you want internet-wise. And when I say do whatever you want, obviously since Microsoft is Microsoft, they can do whatever they want with it as well. And one of those things obviously is, you know, extending out what you can do with, uh, you know, the Xbox series of things. So, um, you might remember a few years ago we talked about, um, I believe, well, they, they started up their own, um, game streaming service called xCloud. They did indeed, and they've been uh, working on rolling that uh, steadily to more and more platforms uh, over the last uh, little while, several weeks, several months. Uh, it's clear that uh, going forward, the uh, you know st- game streaming is going to be a big part of their Microsoft strategy for years to come. There, there may still be some sort of actual piece of hardware that perhaps people have under their TV in their homes, but Microsoft and uh, the, the higher-ups at the Xbox division really want game streaming and Microsoft game streaming to be a way for everyone to access games, be it you know on a Microsoft device or a not-Microsoft device or perhaps even an older Microsoft device. And that is the means by which uh, Microsoft is going to be extending the shelf life and the usability, the functionality if you will, of some of their Xbox One consoles. Or not some, but of the Xbox One consoles. Uh, and so what they're going to be doing is bringing some of their biggest uh, titles to the Xbox One and making them available through this cloud game streaming service or, you know, Project X Cloud game streaming service. So in a, a little, perhaps a overlooked part of the blog post that was put up to the official Microsoft blog in the wake of their uh, joint Microsoft-Bethesda E3 presentation a couple of weeks ago, there was a little blurb in there that uh, I don't think got enough attention, but perhaps it should have. And it was uh, written by, or, or it's a quote attributed to Will Tuttle, who's an editor-of-chief uh, of the Xbox Wire, for Microsoft, he says, quote, for the millions of people who play on Xbox One consoles today, we are looking forward to sharing more about how we will bring many of these new next-gen games, such as Microsoft Flight Simulator, to your console through X- through Xbox Cloud Gaming, just like we do with mobile devices, tablets, and browsers. End quote. So, until now, Microsoft has really only described uh, the, the Project xCloud gaming service as uh, being on consoles or on consoles as a way for players to try games before you download. But uh, now they're going to be offering a bit more than that to a previous generation, which is a really, really interesting and innovative idea. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's great. I mean, because... PlayStation 5 is not the only console that also has had a massive shortage in the last little while. Um, because, well, it's, it's the stemming problem of like the, the, the reason why there haven't been, you know, 
PlayStation consoles and Xbox consoles and frankly some computer parts and stuff going around is because there has been a microchip shortage due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And I guess because of this microchip shortage, it's basically set certain things back by months, possibly years, um, some manufacturing processes. So um, from what I understand, I mean, I could be totally wrong, but that's my understanding of it at the moment. So obviously Microsoft has all these new games that they want to release because they're not just a hardware producer. They're also a publisher. So, you know, if this is a way for them to actually, you know, not have to worry about people buying a console before, you know, being able to play a new game. Great. You know, it's like, Oh, we already have people who are on, you know, the Xbox one. We have millions of people on the Xbox one. Maybe we just release this technology that lets them, you know, buy their new Bethesda games that come out, you know, and let them play them through the, this, you know, Xbox cloud experience instead. Maybe that's what we do. And frankly, that's, that's good. Absolutely. It's a a really interesting idea that uh, will allow access of, uh, on the part of many, many people to these games that they might not have otherwise had. And also too, uh, it's a way to perhaps get them to stay in the Microsoft ecosystem, whereas perhaps they might be tempted to go join, you know, a, a play, you know, buy a PlayStation console. Well, why buy a PlayStation console when you can still get some really, you know, up-to-date, current, top-tier titles playable on your older system? Yeah. This is a unique selling point we really haven't seen before. No. Now, if you're thinking that this is going to be rolling out anytime soon, pump the brakes on that idea because uh, it doesn't sound like it's going to be, uh, it doesn't even sound like it's going to be uh, ready for the July launch of Microsoft Flight Simulator. Uh, and according to Microsoft's head of cloud gaming, Kareem Chowdhury, uh, uh, who ha- uh, they have previously said that xCloud will be integrated into consoles, quote, later this year, end quote. So no firm timetable for when this uh, cloud gaming streaming service is going to become available on the Xbox One platform, but it's still going to be coming available to the Xbox One platform. Yeah. Hell, hell of an idea. So uh, an interesting take. I'd imagine crossplay would still, you know, work on some of these games. Uh, perhaps it's a, you know, bigger multiplayer title that you can play between the Xbox One and Xbox Series X uh, through through streaming. So yeah, this is a really neat and innovative idea that uh, really allows Microsoft to further flex their server side muscle, which that is a well-developed deltoid that they have. <laughs> Absolutely. Like they, they are one of the biggest server companies. There's what them, AWS and uh, well, Google, Google has, yeah, Google, Google with Google cloud platform. Yeah. Yeah, there, and I mean, yeah, in terms of like web infrastructure, there's them, the, the, all the people we mentioned and, you know, Cloudflare and, you know, there's, there's other smaller players, but they're certainly all the bigger players. So, yeah. So, uh, I, I do recall reading too that, uh, I believe Microsoft had just uh, this week finished, uh, upgrading some of their, uh, X cloud gaming servers to, uh, be all outfitted with, uh, Series X technology or Xbox Series X technology. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, going to be an even, uh, more robust, even better experience, uh, than it was when it was first being rolled out in testing. So, uh, certainly something to, uh, keep your eye on moving forward as Microsoft, uh, 
becomes less about the uh, the console and more about the game streaming. And I will say this to Microsoft's credit, too. They are actually a company with a good history of supporting older consoles. Uh, I mean, still to this day, my Xbox 360, I can still go buy games for it through the, uh, through the, uh, uh, you know, online digital marketplace. They still have sales for games for the Xbox 360. Just because a new system has come out, they don't drop the old one like a hot potato. No, no, they don't. So this, uh, like I said, it, it, if nothing else, it's also just generating goodwill on the part of uh, their fan base, their ingrained installed user base, and uh, perhaps even other gaming people out there as well, like you and I, who come across the story and we're like, wow, that's a really neat idea. Huh. They're the only ones doing it. <laughs> yeah. But, but we'll see how it all plays itself out. Going forward, but speaking of going forward, we must go forward into our last segment of the program, which if you've, if you have been listening to this program for any period of time beyond just the period of this episode, you'll know the last portion of the show is always the blast from the past where we take some time to celebrate things that are marking a milestone anniversaries. They can be movies, games, TV shows, music albums, things that we have come across, things we have experienced that uh, we think you should experience and are worth talking about as well. We have Two items that are kind of forward-looking at the uh, time of this program's release, but we have a reason for that we'll discuss in a minute. And both of them are big summer blockbuster movies. One is uh, not as old as the other. One is only 25 years old. The other one is a goodish 30 years old. Uh, where would you like to start this week? Uh, let's start with the 25-year-old one, I think, and then we can go back to the 30 30- Year one, since I think we'll have maybe a little bit more to say about that one, but, uh, uh all right. The, the, the thing I'll, the thing I'll basically say before jumping into both of this is they're both movies that, you know, look forward to the future, but they basically have a different outcome of what they think the future will bring. The first one we'll talk about, very hopeful. And the second one, not at all hopeful. <laughs> The first one with a lot of light, uh, a lot of uh, levity, uh, and some joy to it as well, given the circumstances. But uh, the first one came out all the way back on July 3rd, 1996. And this is uh, the first real big vehicle that uh, launched a TV star to become a film star. Uh, this is the movie that was directed by Roland Emmerich. It's a big destruction, summer blockbuster type movie. This is Independence Day. Yeah, Independence Day. Um, this movie came out back in the time also, you know, when after a movie already went through its cycle in the theater and once it, you know, was released on home, you know, video, it kind of also would show up as one of those movies that would get shown on television quite a lot, <laughs> especially <laughs> surrounding Independence Day itself, like... I, I particularly remember, well, like TBS or, you know, a channel like that back in the day would have had like, you know, Independence Day Marathon where they would show this movie, you know, constantly all day on Independence Day or like, you know, leading up to Independence Day. Um, and yeah, I think this is one of those movies that people of our generation, if you, if you are around the same age as Mike the Legend and myself and you say you haven't seen this movie, I don't think I'm going to believe you. 
it will have been very hard to go through life and not see this movie. A, just because of, uh, you know, his place in pop culture back at that time. But B, in the years since, how much it's been played on television. Yeah, that's what I mean. And it, yeah, and it's, it doesn't mean you have to like the movie, but chances are you've seen at least most of this movie. Um, kind of, I, yeah, like you said, really, this is the movie that kind of proved to the world, oh, Will Smith can be a bankable movie star. Um, it sure and, did, given he was just uh, on the small screen up to that point as, uh, you know, Will on uh, Fresh Prince of Bel Air after a, uh, decently successful hip-hop career and became a sitcom star and then this made him into, oh, he's like a grown-up actual action movie star. Yeah, I mean, like, this was the year after Bad Boys, which arguably was sort of his, uh technically his breakthrough, but, you know, I, I don't know if, you know, well, Bad Boys was a crazy successful movie, but, like, Independence Day, like, that was also more of, like, a, an ensemble film, Will Smith and Martin Lawrence, Independence Day, in some ways, was basically, despite the fact that, like, there's a crazy cast in hindsight for this movie, Will Smith was sort of, like, the clear standout, which is also hard to say, considering this is a movie that also co-starred Jeff Goldblum and Bill Pullman, and Judd Hirsch, like, and Randy Quaid, (laughs) and Harvey Firestein, like, like, these are all, you know, very strong personalities, but somehow Will Smith, for whatever reason, I think kind of stood a little bit above and beyond everyone else in this movie in terms of his presence on the screen and, you know, in terms of just impact on on screen and everything. It was just, I think he did a good job in this movie. He, he absolutely did. There was, uh, it was a good uh, vehicle to really convey his charm. Like there's yeah. just a, a, just a natural likable charm and, uh, Somehow he still just comes across as believable as just the absolutely unbelievable circumstances of the movie just start unfolding around him. Also, uh, the writers of this film really made sure to give him some really quotable, quipping one-liners like a good action hero movie should have. Yeah, exactly. You know, uh, of course, I'm thinking of the, the image of him in the desert after his plane has crashed, just basically punching out an alien and saying, welcome to Earth. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. There, there's a lot of iconic scenes in this movie. I, I think I want to say there was maybe a very minor level of controversy when this first came out because one of like the major scenes that they they used was the White House being just blown up by an alien starship, <laughs> which, of course, in America, kind of not you know okay. Like people are going to take quite a great amount of offense to that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I'd say this movie still holds up even if you have to look at it, you know, through like a little bit of like, you know, there, there's like the lens of like, well, it's a cheesy nineties action movie. That's the lens you have to watch it with because, you know, there's, there are aspects of this movie that, even at the time kind of bothered me. Like this is very much like if you're not an American, some of the impact of this movie is going to be lost and, or is going to feel a little bit ridiculous and maybe crazy because there's a whole speech. I mean, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and, you know, I'm going to say spoiler alert, but it's from 1996. So 
it, if you haven't seen this movie in the last 25 years, that's kind of on you. <laughs> so it always, if I had the one complaint about this movie, it was the big, you know, speech at the end where, and the whole like thing at the end, how it's like, oh, we're the Americans. We figured out how to do this. Yeah. So now from this day forward, July 4th will always be the world's independence day. And it's like, Oh yeah. So you get to declare that America. Great. <laughs> yeah. No one else would have figured this out if it wasn't for you and your one wacky scientist played by Bill Pullman being, or sorry, Jeff Goldblum being Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> so yeah. Great. Now, now the world gets to celebrate an American holiday. Great. That's awesome. Yeah. This is a very raw, raw American, uh, action movie. Despite there's yeah. global implications to the script and uh, the circumstances, it's still very rooted in America. Uh, I mean, hell. But, like, just extending out even on that idea, the part that bothered me was the fact that, you know, the President of the United States is the one basically going on the air and they're broadcasting his speech around the world and everyone around the world is, like, looking at televisions and listening to the radio and, like, you know – doing whatever, like, you know, from the, the, you know, you see, you know, all the different around the world stereotypes. Like, I think they show like an obviously British shot. I think they show some sort of like shot of people in Asia somewhere. And like, you know, they see African tribes, people surrounded by a radio or something. And it's like, okay, great. So this is what tells us that the whole world is listening. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, <laughs> this is going to be the world's independence day. It's like, okay. You have, you've declared this the world's independence day. Great. America gets to do that because America is the one that figured out how to destroy this thing. Great. Global implications though. Would it have been America? Maybe, but might it have been China? Actually, probably. <laughs> anyways, that, that's just my beef with the movie. Uh, and and I can see that uh, your point is well taken. Um, I can I cannot separate it from being just a like a cheesy summer blockbuster movie. So. Well, yeah, I mean, it still is that as well. And I mean, in all of the times that this movie was on television, it's a hundred percent one of those movies where I would pick it up and just basically watch it to the end from wherever <laughs> it was at. It's you know it. This movie, Forrest Gump, is another one of those movies like that. You know, there's a few of these movies. Even, like, Men in Black is another one, like another Will Smith movie. Like, there's a few movies like that for for a while. It's like, yeah, I guess I'll watch the rest of Independence Day, despite the fact that there's an hour and a half left. <laughs> <laughs> and I wasn't planning on doing that. <laughs> Uh, but uh, I do enjoy in this movie too. It's got Randy Quaid, uh, playing the stereotypical kind of, you know, farmer, uh, uh, alien nut job who claims he's been visited before and uh, abducted and whatnot. And just like your typical kind of. Well, uh, Randy Quaid as himself, yes. Y yes, yes. Before we knew what Randy Quaid was really all about. <laughs> yes, exactly. Before he really just went off the deep end and, uh, I, you know what? Perhaps this was just a foreboding. It was, uh, you know, it portended, uh, of what Randy Quaid's life would be, would be like in the years to come. Who, who would have known? Yeah. But, uh, Independence Day, an enjoyable, enjoyable movie and, uh, enjoyable in that so many big American landmarks just get blown to kingdom come too. <laughs> like, yeah. 
like the indelible image is the one of uh, of the White House just being blown to smithereens as like the you know it, you know giant mothership is above it. Uh, several other landmarks like across New York, uh, in California, and across the United States just get blown to high hell, and that felt very satisfying to see too. You know, because it's not just aliens hiding in in bushes or aliens landing in farmers' fields in Iowa or something. No, they're attacking all the big cities. Yeah, exactly. And really making it clear that these aliens, they're they are an actual menace. There's actual threat uh, to everyone, to society, from these aliens by them attacking these structures. But uh, you said that... Uh, these two movies have different visions, and Independence Day is an enjoyable romp. It's a uh, very light, very popcorny. Uh, so that's one vision. But now a darker vision of the future, which you and I have referenced many times in the history of this program, even joking, somewhat tongue in cheek, somewhat, that this movie is uh, less a movie and more a documentary. It's now time to talk about the 30th anniversary of what I think can be argued as a perfect movie. This what I'm saying now is Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Yeah. I will agree with that assessment. We've talked about well, we're we're huge fans of, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger from his heyday on this program. I mean, you know, throw throw one of those movies at any of us and then we'll probably, you know, rant on about our favorite scenes and like the things we like the most about it. Mm-hmm. This movie, I think will be the whole movie. <laughs> And I know, like, people, you know, when I, when I talk about, you know, this being an actually good movie, to people who kind of outright dismiss, um, anything involving Arnold Schwarzenegger as being actually good, because, you know, people have this, you know, messed up perception of, like, what good is, because, you know, they, they just think, well, it didn't win an Oscar, or it's, you know, not gonna be, you know, like, the, the acting in this movie is cheesy and whatever, but it's like, it's not. It really isn't. I mean, yeah, there's one-liners. Yeah, there's there's a bit of cheesiness to the character, but he's supposed to be an android. <laughs> like, he's an android. There's going to be some degree of, like, you know, fish out of water with it, or, like, you know, weird. Like, yeah, it's... um. So that can be explained away right away with that in terms of like maybe some of his stilted dialogue, but it's used to great effect. It is. This is one of those movies that uh, knows what it has with Arnold Schwarzenegger and actually plays to his strengths. Absolutely. Yeah. I would say that James Cameron did that the best between this movie and true lies, which is another excellent movie. I know like, you know, when, when me and my, Girlfriend, we were also kind of early on, you know, in showing each other movies and stuff that we liked. I was like, you should watch True Lies. We should watch True Lies. And she's like, that's ah, going to be a cheesy movie. And I don't know. I don't know if I, it was same, same kind of trepidations a lot of people have, you know, involving, you know, all that stuff. But like she, like we've since watched both Terminator 2 and True Lies and she's kind of like agreed, like, no, these are actually good, enjoyable movies. Like, like they're really, like she, I think she was like, I enjoyed these a lot more than I thought I would. It's like, yes, <laughs> but also Terminator two, like it's, it's, there's cheesy moments, but overall it's, it's a drama. Like it's very, like there's lots and lots of dark parts to this movie, like very dark parts. 
Oh yeah, dark parts, but uh, what I said off the top when I described it as a perfect movie, it has everything. It's got drama, it's got action, it's got comedy, it's got, uh, you know, it's got the whole range of emotions, it's got the whole range of experiences you'd want in a movie, and it's it's enjoyable all throughout, anchored by some really strong acting performances by Arnold Schwarzenegger, by Linda Hamilton, by Robert Patrick, and by Edward Furlong. Yeah. Like, career-defining performances, I would say, for almost everyone involved? Absolutely. And I think when it came out uh, back in 1991, uh, Terminator 2 Judgment Day kind of became, like, you know, the pinnacle of culture for that moment. Uh, you know, became, you know, would be parodied in a number of things. It, like, was the top-grossing movie at the box office. It, you know, just further shot uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger into the superstardom if he could get any higher. Uh, and it just was, you know, one hell of a force of a movie. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like there's not really a lot I can say about this movie other than if you haven't seen it, you should go see it. And no, you don't need to see the first one. It kind of helps. But they're very different movies. Um, the, and it's, I think this is another one of those weird things where it's like the first movie kind of set up the idea of what, you know, of like the universe, you know, like the, there's, you know, the, in the future, you know, there's going to be like basically the machines take over and realize that, you know, man is, you know, the enemy. So they, take out man and they, you know, of course man fights back because that's what we're going to do. We don't want machines to wreck us as a species. Like that's insane. And, you know, they, they see the, the biggest threat to their existence in the future or at, at the time they're present, you know, as a certain person. So they go, they've, <laughs> their solution being machines is, well, let's just go back in time and kill him before he's born. So, you know, that's what the first movie is about, trying to kill his mother. And it's basically more along the lines of like, just like almost a horror movie than it is a, you know, a sci-fi epic or anything, but it basically sets the, the, the universe up. And then the second movie turns it all in its head because the very person who is sent out to kill the woman in the first one is sent to save her in the second one, her and her son in the second one. So, and it's it's the far more robust, interesting story in the second one because clearly, you know, there's money now because, well, James Cameron um, made some money as a director and, you know, just kind of, uh, yeah, just was able to be given a bigger budget and stuff like that. Uh, but, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's, I can't even, you know, I don't think there's a bad thing that I can say about Terminator 2. Like, it's a great movie from start to finish. I don't have any complaints. I mean, like, there's no big glaring problems I have with it, you know, even like time travel and stuff aside. Like, there's nothing really crazy or awkward or anything about it. It's a tightly written story, which is uh, more than most time travel movies can say for themselves. And... Whatever praise we may heap on it, whatever praise it may have received at the time, I'm going to argue that one of the most impressive accomplishments that this movie has achieved 
is that for being 30 years old, it really does not look like it's 30 years old. It has aged tremendously gracefully, and even the visual effects in this movie, which is a very visual effects-heavy movie, still hold up, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I, I really think the practical effects, you know, need to be praised adequately because, yeah, they use a little bit of CG, but I think James Cameron being like, you know, I, I don't want to throw the term visionary around too lately, but I think in this case, like in many cases, he is a visionary director. I think he recognized that computer technology was good for some things and he didn't want to push it any further than the things it was good for. Because, you know, at that time, you know, the best 3D animation we were going to see was maybe like, you know, the Dire Straits Money for Nothing video or something like that. <laughs> and that's like, you, we're not, we're not there yet in terms of like good animation. So I think he saw that and saw, you know, the potential for what could be. And I think, you know, some of like the transformation like scenes from like, um, you know, goop to, you know, metal man, like the, the, the T-1000, but most of like the actual metal moving shots and stuff were all just practical effects with like mercury and magnets and stuff. And I think, you know, a lot of that was done so well and that's why it holds up because like a lot of the stuff really, it was actual stuff that they were filming. It didn't, doesn't look weird and distorted like a lot of old computer animation does. Exactly. Explosions were actually explosions. Uh, they shot on set pieces in and around Los Angeles. It wasn't all green screened. It wasn't anything of that. Even the use of prosthetics and makeup, uh, on Arnold Schwarzenegger to show yeah. his, uh, his metal, uh, exoskeleton or endoskeleton. Yeah, exactly. Or skeleton? <laughs> skeleton, yes. Uh, or even, even just the, the practical effects too of the, uh, the cyberdynamic arm that is, uh, still housed in Cyberdyne Industries that they have to go and rescue and hopefully destroy, which, uh, is then destroyed in, uh, a scene that, uh, you and I have, uh, joked about quite often of the scientist being left, uh, in the lab to, uh, <laughs> throw the switch. Yes, unfortunately. I mean, it's, it's a super dark scene in the movie, but it's, you know, when you have a dark sense of humor, it's kind of funny to reference that. But, um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's a great movie. Like, I, I don't want to just, you know, overpraise it, but I kind of have to, it feels. It's, it is worth the praise. It is one of those rare movies that is worth the praise, even 30 years on. And as I said, started, when we started uh, this moment talking about it, it's a perfect movie in my eyes. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't like to overhype things for people. So if this movie is brand new to you and you've never seen it before and you've, you know, you've been kind of considering it for a while, watch it and let us know what you think. If you don't like it, let us know why. I'm genuinely curious. I mean, it, it might be just a thing of like, I really hate Arnold Schwarzenegger. I really just can't get over his cheesiness and whatever and blah, blah, blah. And that's fair, I guess. But in the terms of like the whole movie, like, I don't know if it's really that impactful, but anyways, I'm, I don't want to defend something that no one said yet. <laughs> I don't want to mount a fake defense for something that no one said. So yeah. Yeah, settle down. Uh, we'll wait for any sort of comment to come in. Again, if you, uh, wish to have your say about Terminator 2, is it not the classic that we are building it out to be? Let us know your thoughts in the long form by writing us an email and sending it to info at the arcade show.com 
or you can just write off uh, some quick from the hip missives, send them to us over social media. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook at the arcade show on both of those platforms. But again, Terminator two judgment day, 30 years on, and as we've said many times through the court, the history of this program, it's more of a documentary than a uh, piece of sci-fi. <laughs> yes, that, that's what we've said, and I think we'll stick by that for now uh, while while AI keeps, you know, picking up steam and uses and such. And uh, yeah. Yeah. And before that, we spoke about Independence Day, which is 25 years old and less a vision of the future and more just an enjoyable popcorn movie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if you just want to sit down, lose your brain for uh, a couple hours and just be entertained, there you go. Independence Day. Perfect. And those are somewhat forward looking because again, we will be away, uh, for the start of July. Uh, it will be Canada Day here, Independence Day in America land. So we'll be off observing those holidays and we'll be back with you eh, after that, uh, in the uh, early part, but uh, maybe closer to the middle of July. But, uh, keep your, Ears peeled, your uh, podcast app open for that. And uh, if you haven't already, subscribe to this program on both iTunes and Google Podcasts. Uh, we are on both those platforms. And direct, li- direct links to our pages on both of those platforms can be found on our homepage of thearcadeshow.com. And uh, I dare say that's uh, that's about all we have to say for uh, for this episode of The Arcade. And we thank you so much for joining us once again, ladies and gentlemen, uh, boys and girls, children of all ages, and hope you can uh, uh, be safe observing the holidays and uh, join us again next time. So until then, good night. Good night. <laughs>